The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, once again, our show has been thwarted by the good people at ESCOM because <laughs> they don't seem to have enough power in your country. So our guest today uh, had to cancel. So it's just going to be the two of us doing a show. But we love doing these shows that together we're going to wrap up three big topics from the week that we think that people will find interesting. Uh, we'll start with uh, the Sudan coup that happened on Monday. Then we're going to talk about the G20 summit and also the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. Now, we know that both the G20 and the Glasgow summits are happening over the weekend. And by the time you're listening to the show, you those may have already happened. So we're not going to give any predictions or forecasts. We're going to try and just kind of put the architecture about how China fits into this, also the bigger, broader politics related to Africa. I did some writing on G20, and Kobus did some writing on Glasgow this week, so we'll talk about those ideas as well. Also, just before we get started, huge thank you to all of our Patreon members who are signing up. We really appreciate it. We've got some cool things coming for you this week. Number one, uh, second edition of our new Weekly Digest will be out, as uh, and you guys can get that on Friday in the feed. And then Kobus and I are going to publish our first special podcast, and we're going to schedule our Zoom meetings for next month, uh, next week as well. So for those of you in the Patreon community, keep an eye out for the Zoom invitations, and we're going to do that. We're not sure if it'll be a happy hour or uh, just a regular briefing. So anyway, let's start with the coup in Sudan. On Monday morning in pre-dawn raids, the military toppled the democratically elected government two years after it came to power. This was very interesting from the point of view of the Chinese because, remember, the last major coup there was in Africa, which was in Guinea back in September, the Chinese were very, very quick to respond. Within 24 hours, they issued a strong denunciation of the coup. They demanded the reinstallation of President Alpha Conde. And it was a little bit out of character because in previous coups, the Chinese have held back. And looking back to what happened in Myanmar, it took them weeks to actually come up with a response. So this week, the big question was, how would China respond? And what ended up happening was a very muted response. And this is typical for the Chinese. Let me read you the statement from Wang Wenbing, who is the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesman. And he was asked a question at the regular press briefing in Beijing. And here's what he had to say. China is following the latest developments in Sudan and calls on relevant parties in Sudan to resolve differences through dialogue and maintain national peace and stability at present. The Chinese embassy is operating normally. China will closely follow the developments and take necessary measures to ensure the safety and security of Chinese institutions and people in Sudan. So not a lot there, Kobus, to go on. But later in the week, 
we started to see some media narratives start to tighten up a little bit what they're thinking is. But for the most part, China's doing a wait and see. Yeah, like speaking of the media narratives, I was wondering what you made of this this story that we carried today, um, that there was a story on, on uh, China Central TV, um, then the kind of uh, news agency news feed, um, quoting this this kind of somewhat, <laughs> you know, somewhat like, like shadowy or like kind of unclarified kind of source in 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 Sudan um who alleged that that the US was behind the coup like what did you make of the of the Chinese state media putting that narrative in, into the space yeah it's not surprising because this is a common technique that the Chinese do oftentimes when the foreign ministry is taking its time to respond to a situation like this, the state media will begin to craft some of the narratives. And there is this echo chamber sometimes between the official response and the propaganda response. So they oftentimes work in coordination with one another. What I think is going on here is that, and this has happened many times in the past, that CCTV and other state media and propaganda will be trying out a couple of narratives to see which one sticks. Now, this is for a domestic audience because this was on CCTV's Newswires. This is a an agency that is distributed to hundreds, maybe thousands of news sites throughout China. And, and this, again, it's very powerful because it comes from CCTV. I assume that all of the narratives that are decided into the, and framing the story are approved at the highest levels. And there's no freelancing that goes on with this kind of thing. So what they basically said was that the article was entitled, Who's Behind the Rebellion in Sudan? But again, the translation in Chinese is a little bit different. They use the characters Heishou, which is black hands. That is oftentimes the word that they use for troublemakers, if you will. So in Hong Kong and in Xinjiang, there are black hands that are controlling these things. And oftentimes those trace back to the United States. What CCTV put forth through this, again, this guy, Alfaki, I looked him up. He's also quoted quite a bit in VOA, which is very interesting as well. He's There's no VOA story on the coup right now with him in it. It never gives an affiliation of who he is. He's just an expert, quote unquote, or a political analyst, quote unquote. So we're not quite sure on what his credibility is. But they'll often do this with foreign experts, and it gives them plausible deniability to say, well, it's not us saying this. It's the foreign expert who's saying this. Again, another very common tactic. So what Al-Faki kind of laid out in his piece on CCTV in Chinese was that U.S. sanctions are responsible for gutting the Sudanese economy. U.S. interference in Sudan's internal affairs, that was something that they said was also responsible, this democracy promotion. Again, these are all themes that the Chinese have responded to in other contexts as well. So it's not surprising that they're echoing them in this CCTV report. And then, interestingly enough, the third point that they raised was the the breakup of Sudan that the United States advocated for between Sudan and South Sudan. And they said that that, too, kind of gutted the economy and led to the desperation that we're in today. They concluded at the end that all of these factors together really made it so that it was inevitable that the government would have collapsed. It doesn't matter who was in charge or what kind of government was in power, they said. The result would have been the same. So they're laying it squarely at the at the feet of the Americans. Interestingly enough, there was no mention, of course, about the Russian involvement in Sudan or Certainly, the Chinese have been very active in Sudan for the past 20 years as well. Naturally, they wouldn't say anything about that. So so again, we're seeing once again, 
Africa getting sucked into the great power politics. And, you know, this hasn't really made it out of the Chinese language press into the English language press. But when it does, I can imagine that the U.S. is going to respond and say, well, it's not us, it's the Chinese. And here we go for the tit for tat. Uh, you you spoke with the the Sudan expert Luke Beatty this week about the situation there, and he said that in some kind of ways this is a real test of China's developmental peace model. Um, this kind of idea that of you know of, of essentially kind of fast tracking investment into the and trying to kind of kickstart an economy even as a peace process is still still ongoing. You know, quite standing in contrast to kind of Western approaches of trying to kind of set up set up, uh, you know, kind of civil society and, and kind of government kind of structures in preparation to then kind of kickstart the economy, these two different ideas of, of how to how to deal with kind of post-conflict societies. Um, why did, why do you, like, what did you make of, of his point that this is a kind of a test case for, for, for this approach from China? A very fascinating discussion that I had with Luke. Luke wrote a book on Sudan and South Sudan back in 2013 or 14. And and by many standards, he's considered to be one of the leading experts on Sino-Sudanese relations. So as soon as this happened, I said, okay, I'm going to reach out to Luke to see what he has to say. And I wasn't disappointed at all. So I really encourage you to go check out his Q&A that we did with him on our site. Let me just read you a few a few points that he made. He said, Sudan's star does not shine as brightly for China as it once did. The North African country is no more a significant oil supplier to the Chinese market. A little under a decade ago, Sudan was China's sixth largest foreign oil source, supplying 5.5% of its needs. That position fell sharply when South Sudan succeeded with a, and took 80% of the once united country's oil resource with it. So he points out that oil is not a factor for the Chinese in Sudan. And I think that was the first reaction that a lot of people had, that Sudan would have been important to China because of oil. And that might be one of the key differentiators between the response in Guinea, where they are a major bauxite supplier to China. In fact, I think the largest supplier of bauxite to China, or at least one of the largest suppliers. And that might have motivated a different response. Instead, what Luke says, he says that really at the end of the day, China's reputation is on the line because of all the money that they put into Sudan, all of the promise that they made. He said this is a, uh, you know, once a showcase partnership in Africa for China's leadership, Sudan is now a troubling case. Again, reading from the Q&A with Luke here. Uh, This deep legacy coupled with the coming forum on China-Africa cooperation meeting that's going to take place in Dakar means that Beijing cannot simply walk away from Sudan. Its reputation is on the line. So I think politically is where this story is at rather than economically. And I think that's a very important distinction that Luke made. Yeah, yeah, I also think so. Like in in a lot of ways, you know, Sudan's, Sudan's kind of role as as this kind of oil powerhouse and and other minerals as well has as really waned, you know, you know, and of course due to among others to the to the secession, and uh, but it's 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 political significance still remains powerful. So you know it'll be interesting to see then how that kind of particularly plays out at FOCAC and also in 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 forums like the African Union. So this brings up a very interesting point. The United States is suspending its aid, about $700 million. The African Union has temporarily suspended Sudan's membership. The European Union is following the same, and they're trying to isolate the military leadership. This is a very similar thing that happened in Guinea as well. Also, it brings up the question of Ethiopia, 
because Ethiopia is now under consideration by the United States government for removal of its AGOA trade privileges and for targeted sanctions on certain members of the ruling elite in Ethiopia because of the war in Tigray. The key question that I have is, this is not what it was 15 years ago, that 15, 20 years ago, before China was a major power or before Russia was the Russia of today, when the United States withdrew its aid and when the Europeans withdrew, then countries really were in very big trouble. But countries now can turn to China. And we know that the Chinese have been in discussions with the Guinea military leadership. We know that also just this week that the Chinese dropped 800,000 vaccines as donations with more coming into Ethiopia. They typically have not been donating quantities of that large. The Chinese have been standing up for the Ethiopians at the United Nations, pushing back against unilateral sanctions again, the same theme we heard in the CCTV report about Sudan. And, and again, when we think about now the Horn of Africa and the dynamics there, where the Chinese are very strong in Egypt, very strong in Djibouti, gaining strength in Ethiopia, Somalia is very, very much aligned with China, especially over the issue of Taiwan and Somaliland. And now maybe we have Sudan, where the Chinese you know, don't seem to have the same hesitancy about engaging with a military dictatorship or coup leaders that and the Americans do. So there's a potential here for these new military governments to turn to Beijing for support that they're going to lose from the Americans and the Europeans. They may not get dollar for dollar, but they might get something which is better than nothing. What do you think about that? I think that this reflects a kind of a wider problem, which is that that for concerned governments, you know, governments concerned about about a human rights situation kind of going south in a particular country, or you know, or uh, you know, a, a military coup, or, or this kind of situation. They don't have many. They don't have much leverage over over the, act, the the actions of a foreign government. The one kind of leverage they have is sanctions, and so they then kind of tend to throw sanctions at these countries in the hope that that it'll change something. But what it frequently ends up, up doing, and um, and I think this was true even in South Africa, which I think is you know the the, the anti-apartheid case is frequently the the kind of platinum chip case for sanctions. Um, what it does is it allows the, the the military government to entrench itself and to then reshape the entire society around it. Because it's not, you know, it's like within that country, these these military leaders are the most powerful people in the country, right? So they not they themselves won't be affected by the sanctions. The only people who are affected by the sanctions are the normal people. So you see this very much in Zimbabwe, you know, kind of where one of the effects of the sanctions has actually been to entrench the people that they were sort of trying to weaken, um, and that happens left and right in you know kind of in, in in global south countries and particularly global south countries that are so so kind of mineral dependent in their in their their economies you know kind of because there's always someone to sell minerals to you know like it's Russia Turkey whoever you know it's like um, and uh, so so what it just ends up doing is kind of freezing the whatever kind of uh, economic development is happening, um, you know, kind of, and and allowing that then to to be re to all of that, those resources to be rerouted into the militarization of the entire society, and that is what I fear is, is could happen in Ethiopia as well. So, you know, I, I can understand why these countries go for sanctions because they don't they don't have anything else to go to go with, but at the same time, it it ends up being very counterproductive frequently. I had a discussion this week with some folks in Washington, and we were 
kind of game playing out the sanctions debate regarding Ethiopia. And I guess the question that I put to them was, what is the ultimate policy objective of the United States? Because, again, there's a question of values, and clearly the human rights violations and atrocities and the war and the violence really offends the sensibilities in terms of those values that the United States has. But then there are interests as well. And China and containing Chinese influence is a primary national security interest of the United States. So if the sanctions only push Prime Minister Abayi closer to the Chinese, then those two are in conflict with one another. And what was so interesting was that nobody had a clear answer as to how the values versus the interests play out. And I guess it's the same question in Sudan as well. These sanctions, again, make a lot of sense in terms of values and expressing your outrage and whatnot. You certainly don't want to reward governments for, you know, overthrowing, uh, you know, having military coups and whatnot like that. But in today's world, uh, to your point, I'm not sure how well these sanctions actually work. I remember the reaction from the coup leaders in Myanmar when the United States threatened sanctions against them and I think followed through with sanctions against them. And they said, listen, we've been under your sanctions for 20 years. Exactly. Go ahead. Put more sanctions on us. We don't really care. It's not going to make a difference. And look at no better example, the lack of utility of sanctions is Cuba. Hmm. where Cuba has been under a full embargo by the United States, and yet, as you point out, it just more deeply entrenched the Castro regime for much of the Cold War. It didn't work. It still hasn't worked. Yeah. And I don't think it's going to work in Ethiopia either, to be honest with you. So I don't know what the policy objective is. How do you play this out? What's the outcome for the United States that they are better off at the end of this than where they are today if Abayi leans more towards the Chinese? Yeah, and I mean it's not only the Chinese. The, the 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 problem with the sanctions is it it has a it has a kind of a chemotherapy logic to it, right? Kind of like where you 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 have to weaken the the entire body in order to then target this one you know kind of this one kind of problematic section of it, and the the effect then is that like one of the logics of it is that is that it causes like the sanctions causes so much stress within the society it causes you know um it causes such a it puts such a kind of a a weight on on a survival weight on people that they might then that it then starts kind of like undercutting the government you know kind of from below it starts kind of you know kind of building building resistance against the government but the thing is these are military governments authoritarian military governments they're already very well armed against popular resistance and the the effect of the sanctions is to to demolish the middle class, to make everyone poorer, which means that everyone is then less, everyone is just more focused on surviving, which ends, which is fine for the military government. And, you know, the logic that underlies all of this is a, a kind of a complete... Um, disinterest and you know about about the kind of like a larger welfare then of the population like you know kind of neither the military government nor the chinese nor the people in washington care whether the entire middle class of ethiopia for example is plunged into into poverty right they don't care so you know so 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 that then weirdly puts pushes puts everyone on the same side you know kind of the sanctions makers and the military government end up kind of reinforcing each other so let me direct you to two articles which I think are very interesting on this subject. One that was in Foreign Policy. You'll need a subscription if you want to access that called Don't Remove Ethiopia's AGOA Trade Privileges. It's by Mamu Muretu, who is Ethiopia's chief trade negotiator. And the case that he makes, Kobus, is exactly what you are saying. He's claiming that 200,000 jobs, mostly from young women, 
will be eliminated if AGOA privileges are stripped. Other people have said that, go ahead, take away the AGOA privileges. Cameroon lost its AGOA privileges. Rwanda lost its AGOA privileges. They contend they haven't suffered. And because the China market is there, that China can absorb whatever apparel and leather exports that Ethiopia was sending to the United States can go to China. That is the, that's the, those are the arguments that are going on right now. And then, of course, go check out what's at stake for China in Sudan. That's our discussion that we had with Luke Patey, and you can find that on the ChinaAfricaProject.com website. Okay, let's move on to Glasgow. This is Climate Week. Everybody's talking about COP26 and the big climate summit. Uh, Xi Jinping is not going to be there. Xi Jinping is not going to Europe at all for either the G20 summit in Rome or Glasgow. Lots of folks are disappointed about that. I talked to some folks in Beijing and was asking, why isn't he going? And a lot of people said, well, the president doesn't want to go because he doesn't want to leave China. He hasn't left China since the beginning of the pandemic. Other people said because he doesn't want to get into a conflict with the, the U.S. and all the tensions that are going on in so many different ways. But some of the folks that I was talking to said, really, it didn't have anything to do with that. That when the president travels, there's about an entourage of two or 300 people that have to be mobilized. China's very strict quarantine regulations would mean that upon their return, they would all have to be isolated for two to three weeks, if not more. And that would be very disruptive to the presidency and the operating of the government at a very, very stressful time in China. Let's bear in mind right now in China, things are not good, <laughs> to say the least. There are power outages. There have been floods in Shanxi province. Uh, there, there's been any, the economy is, is shaky, going, you know, growth rates came down to 4.9%. Uh, there's a lot of domestic challenges facing the president. And these guys that I talked to said, it's not a good time for him to leave. Okay. That's, that's their argument. I'm not going to cast judgment on that. But Kobus, you wrote a very fascinating piece for the site and that went out to subscribers. And you focused on the impact that Glasgow has on the lives of African youth. And you are quite skeptical about what's going to happen there. Tell us more about what you're thinking. Yeah, I, I was looking at this this kind of gap between um, climate mitigation and climate adaptation funds. Um, you know, so so for people who are not in in the the, the kind of climate change debate so much, um, climate uh, mitigation talks about new emissions. Um, you know, kind of how how to how to change power generation and other industries and so on to to lessen the number the, the amount of emissions that that's currently going into the atmosphere. So it's clearly very, very important. Um, the problem, though, is that all of the previous emissions, all of the emissions that, that uh, up to now, they're still in the atmosphere. They're, they're, all of that CO2 hasn't gone anywhere. So even even if by some miracle we manage to like get get the you know all of all of the the kind of new emissions down to a level where where it, it kind of makes you know survival on Earth more feasible, um, we still have to deal with all of the emissions that that came from the 19th century and 20th centuries and up to now. And we've seen you know kind of over the last five years we've seen actually a doubling down on emissions and investments in oil. So there's been a sharp rise in emissions you know over like like after the Paris Accord. Um, perversely so what we talk about there is you need to make societies more resilient to deal with climate change 
And this is a problem in both in the global north and in the global south. Is that there's, you know, for example, a city like Miami is like like staring at like billions of dollars, billions plus, probably closer, you know, kind of yeah, at the high billions, um, you know, in, in in terms of of you know having to move pipelines, having to move you know kind of roads and everything kind of inland in order to deal with with sea level rise, for example. So the that kind of adaptation money is is really massive. And um, there isn't a lot of attention being paid to adaptation funds compared to mitigation funds because everyone is so <laughs> hair on fire trying to kind of to, to get the, the the new emissions down. Um, so this is a really big issue for Africa, um, and it's there's also kind of opportunities actually in Africa to kind of hit both of these at once in terms of new infrastructure by just from the start building new infrastructure that will already mitigate emissions. You know, by by kind of for example implementing solar and wind, um, and do be adaptive in the sense that it then kind of sets up societies in order to to be already be climate resilient. You know, kind of by for example building solar microgrids. Um, so you know, the African Union is bringing um, a plan to COP26 in Glasgow um, where it's this $25 billion plan. Half of it is being funded by the African Development Bank. They're, they're looking for investors for the rest. Um, and it's it's essentially this kind of fund that's going to be, be targeting job creation for African youth, among others, um, and things like like agriculture, agricultural resilience and so on. So all of these are, are ways to kind of reset African societies in a way that's that will help them to already adapt to the changes that are coming and particularly in this case like by massively creating employment for african youth in order to work in these fields you know kind of so someone is going to have to be screwing all those millions of solar panels to roofs you know and this the plan is you know to to, to kind of motivate or to, to kind of mobilize kind of african youth in order to to kind of to to move them into that economic space well cobus to pick up on on that point i think you're going to find some companionship in your thinking over in the state house in Kampala in Uganda, where President Museveni, he wrote an, uh, an op-ed piece for the Wall Street Journal that really, I think, took people by surprise because there is this pushback, as you're talking about, saying how there's a discrepancy between the needs of people in Africa and the global south and some of the ideas and the urgency coming out of the global north. Museveni wrote in the Wall Street Journal Africa can't sacrifice its future prosperity for Western climate goals. The continent should balance its energy mix, not rush straight towards renewables, even though that will likely frustrate some of those gathering at the Global Climate Conference in Glasgow. So again, a pushback from African stakeholders to say, wait, 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 our development needs to be have a mix of energy and not necessarily rush as quickly into this. I think the concern might be that, again, following up on the coal discussions we've had about China, they're going to withdraw all of the carbon money that the Chinese say for building coal-fired power plants and not backflow that with money for green. So interesting discussion that's going on. Yeah, it's, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there. Obviously, um, Museveni and and people like Gwede Mantashi, who's the, the, the mining and energy minister in South Africa, have, have insisted that that there is that that you know um, that power sources like natural gas, for example, should be should be in the mix for Africa simply because because the 
you know, kind of replacing everything with renewables, particularly in poor countries and particularly in countries with very old grids, like you like you're seeing in in um, in you know with, with grids that were set up for for hydrocarbon um, energy transmission already, like in the 60s, for example, like transitioning them immediately directly into renewables is tricky, and I I appreciate that. Um, on the other hand, I also find it a little bit frustrating, um, particularly on the Montasha case. Montasha is very, like, he, he was a, a coal unionist in the past and is, is very adamant about, sort of the, about the, the place for coal in South Africa's energy mix, even though I think in, in a lot of cases renewables actually is, they're, they're cheaper and they're, they're you know, they make more sense, I think. Um, so, so it's, it's a kind of a mixed bag. I think, I think, you know, I have sympathy for, for the kind of pushback I think in Africa um, against you know against this kind of pressure from the globe from global north, particularly from Europe and the US, because it's not only a situation that these countries were were using massively burning hydrocarbons right through the 19th century, 20th century, and still hard like advocating hard for them right now. Um, it's also it's it's not only that these countries were developing and growing rich on these on on the on these kind of power sources and now they're preaching to the to the developing world about it you know that is already galling but the fact is that these countries were you know particularly europe was up to the 1960s so we're talking like at least like 160 years right kind of, of the, all of this hydrocarbon wasn't just being used while other countries were underdeveloped it was actively being used to underdevelop these countries you know that it was part of an imperial project um, and these you know so a country like the UK for example is is like multiply culpable on all of these fronts right it's not only that they grew on you know that they polluted the world you know in order to grow rich themselves and are now preaching to the developing world they were actively using that 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 wealth as part of a massive imperial project which then contributed to the underdevelopment of the rest of the world so you know so in that sense like I can I can really see why these countries have so little patience for the, for this on the other hand everything is in crisis you know kind of like we like all of like everyone has to abandon kind of their set ideas about what development and what you know kind of what energy generation looks like because the entire global situation is in full on crisis at the moment you know so, so in that sense like like I, I really have sympathy for that viewpoint but at the same time it's it does it doesn't change the fact that that if if we you know that that every sector of the global economy has to be reformed anyway you know so in that sense I, I kind of I, I like pragmatism actually like the more more radical you know discussion in terms of like like you know changing everything at once actually becomes the more practical and pragmatic discussion in lots of ways you know kind of because because we simply don't have time for for anything else so did, did, you know kind of what do you do you also see it that way well, I do. I mean, I'm a pragmatist there, and, I, and I'm sympathetic to Museveni's point here. I mean, he goes on to say that a better solution is for Africa to move slowly towards a variety of reliable green energy sources. He then goes on to say wildlife-friendly mini-hydro technologies should be a part of the continent's energy mix. We talked about mini-hydro a, a couple of weeks ago, which I think it's interesting that he brought that up, too. I'm a big fan hydro. of mini-hydro. I mean, mini-hydro. It's not hydro. It's mini-hydro. And it's a mix of solar and mini-hydro. It's, it's not drought-resilient. It, That's it, true. It, it seizes up the moment there's a dry spell, and there's going to be a billion dry spells because of climate change. It ruins the environment, even if it's mini you know, it's like like Africa has more sun like sun hours per you know kind of than anywhere else in the world. Like you know, kind of pave the continent in solar panels. Like what's 
you know like the you know it's it's i find it frustrating you know um i tend to think that that there is a, a place again just for pragmatic reasons and this is just me i you know kind of it is i'm not you know um you know i, I can't speak for anyone but me but like it, it it's it sounds to me that that the as a short-term kind of bridging you know kind of mechanism something like like natural gas and probably nuclear is you know kind of it will be useful for places like like africa and i think one one of the one of the kind of it might one kind of like pragmatic solution might be to allocate those only to the global south you know kind of only to to kind of lower lower income countries are the only ones that should be allowed to use to use something like natural gas and natural gas economies in the u.s for example need to be rooted out completely and you know as as, as a rich country that can afford to make that transition without without ruining their the economy they should you know that 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 tends to be the for me uh, but but then i'm you know have you not been paying attention at all to the politics in the united, in the united states they are going to do nothing of the kind will happen <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not talking about. I'm talking about what should happen. I'm not talking about what's politically feasible in the U.S. Those are two very different things. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, that is what we call wishful thinking. So, if we can't get coal out of our energy mix, natural gas is going to be there for a long time. Uh, and, and this is really one of the questions that, as Biden goes to Glasgow with the energy and the clean energy and the climate mitigation portions of his infrastructure bill pulled out of the bill for the most part. They're almost all dead. It does bring up, again, the credibility of the United States that I brought up in last week's show as well, that I, again, I, I contend that the U.S. is not a good spokesperson on this issue, despite what they say. Let's move on, and we'll stay with the U.S. a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about the G20 summit. So, Glasgow and the G20 summit. So this is the big summit of the year for the G20. Up until now, they've had ministers getting together. I cannot say enough what a complete and total utter disaster and failure and just poop show the G20 is. I mean, they have done absolutely nothing, especially for the global south on the pertinent issues of vaccines and certainly on debt. There is no other way to describe the G20 on debt as nothing but a failure. But let's talk about the G20. Uh, earlier this week, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, he gave a press briefing. And it's not very often when the National Security Advisor kind of steps up in front of the microphone and says, here's what we're going to do. And again, the, the Americans have done a very, very conscious effort in the Biden administration to kind of downplay the China rhetoric a little bit, a little bit, not Entirely. But B3W, which is the Build Back Better World Initiative, and this has really been framed as the alternative to the BRI, came up as one of the issues. And again, this is going to be a theme of what Biden is going to do at the G20. He's going to try and rally support for it. Now, we've heard a lot of things about the B3W over the past four months since it was launched in July where at once it was saying it's not a rival to the Belt and Road. This is just the United States coming up with their own initiative to put climate-friendly, green, clean, transparent infrastructure into the global south and to help fill the, I think it's $40 trillion, some ridiculously high number of uh, the infrastructure need in the global south. Other days you hear the Americans say it is a direct challenge to the Chinese. Let's listen to what Jake Sullivan said about B3W and the Belt and Road. He'll be laser focused on supply chains and energy prices because he knows that these issues impact working families here in America. 
and in advancing the Build Back Better World initiative, the B3W initiative, um, he will show how a high standards, climate-friendly alternative to the Belt Road initiative can help American firms and American workers compete globally on every aspect of infrastructure from physical to digital to health. Cobus, there you go. I mean, as clear as day and uh, on every aspect of infrastructure. That's a pretty bold statement to make against the Belt and Road, which has a lot of proof points. Again, many of many people would say those proof points are toxic. Many people would say that there's too much debt, that the infrastructure isn't good, the infrastructure wasn't allocated properly. Say what you want, but the fact is there are facts on the ground for the Belt and Road, and the B3W has nothing more than a listening tour to Latin America. And so, but they've laid it out. So there it is, right there. High standards, climate-friendly alternative to the Belt and Road. What's your reaction when you hear that? I mean, it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, that sounds great. You know? <laughs> and then and then again, you know, kind of you revert back to what, what, what the Biden administration has not been able to get through, you know, through at home. You know, kind of all of like the, the, the kind of green transition kind of packages, you know, and, and uh, like they're, they're really facing a lot of political kind of opposition at home, even within the Democratic Party. So it's like, yeah, sure, like, you know, trillions of, infra- of, of trillions of dollars worth of green infrastructure, sure, bring it on, it'll be great. But like, I, I don't, I really, it's, it's really difficult to take it seriously, um, you know, because, because it's politically impossible to move, to move the needle even much less than it would take to, to actually roll out those those amounts of infrastructure like that, that amount of resources globally i mean if they can't even kind of make it happen within the u.s like how is it going to happen so i was going to write a column this week on this i ran out of time but here's my take on it i think most countries around the world do not take the b3w seriously in the least because what they've seen over the past 10 15 years of u.s presidential politics is that when one party loses the White House, the rival party comes in and wipes out everything that the previous administration did, that they can. That's not locked in by congressional law. So anything that is by the president on executive order or some issue that they can wipe out, they will wipe out. It is forecast that the Democrats are very likely to lose the House and possibly the Senate in next year's midterm elections. It is also not a foregone conclusion that the Democrats will hold on to the White House in 2024. That is not that far away. That is just two years away. So the idea of committing to this huge program, billions of dollars, rallying Wall Street, getting in all these different stakeholders, only to see the incoming Trump administration wipe it all out because literally it's branded Build Back Better, which is the Biden slogan. There is no way on God's green earth that an incoming Republican administration, most likely the Trump administration, will keep a Biden signature program like this. So why would you invest in this until you know for sure that it's going to be something that will, that will have some durability? But I think Amer- people are looking at American politics right now and saying it's too volatile. Well, I'm not going to line up behind this because only to see it wiped out in two years. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's this interesting debate, um, you know, that's been going on for a few years in, in kind of political philosophy, kind of academia circles about how compatible democracy as we know it is now with climate mitigation. Um, and I think this is exhibit A in, this, in that particular debate. Um, you know, it's like because the point is, is the, the issue isn't only that that these kind of 
these initiatives get cancelled every few years, you know. It's that that is the Biden administration's main selling point for the US and the world is that it's this kind of like big democracy, right? Kind of like, and, and it, it, it kind of sets it up against against China in this like, to my mind, like somewhat reductionist, um, you know, kind of idea of like autocracies versus democracies, but which is fine. I mean, I'm, I'm a great supporter of democracy, but the if the democracies you, <laughs> you bring to the table, and this is not only the US, it's also many European like democracies are in such a kind of permanent kind of you know stalemate that literally it is a situation where they can't move forward and it's not only that they can't move forward because things will be cancelled it's because every two years you know kind of like all of the political will around whatever kind of initiative they're pushing evaporates because then it's you know like for example if they if they lose the you know kind of the house and senate next year then we we're in for two years of 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 stasis right kind of there's no there's no moving forward then um so you know so so but but that ends up being their main selling point this kind of this the stasis and this kind of stalemate ends up being these countries' main, main selling point. It's like, support us. We have these powerful democracies, you know, but then it just ends up kind of wasting years of years of time, you know, kind of, and, and not really kind of like bringing anything to the world at the end of it, of all of it, you know, kind of. So it's, it's just, it, it, it's, it's so self-contradictory that, that it can't but be very frustrating. Well, let's quickly get on to the G20 before we run out of time here. So the G20 summit is going to take place. Interestingly, in Jake Sullivan's comments, he only mentioned very briefly the issue of debt relief. It is clearly not a priority for the global north countries because they're focusing on the 15% global minimum corporate tax. That is the big issue that they want to get done. Also, as Sullivan said, supply chains are the issue that they're going to talk about because that's affecting uh, them directly, especially ahead of the Christmas season. However, it is predicted that debt relief will be on the agenda and especially focusing on the common framework. And what we saw this week already was not necessarily constructive to what's going to happen at the summit. And it will be interesting that by the time you guys listen to this, the summit will probably have already happened and we'll know. But a unnamed U.S. Treasury Department official spoke with Reuters and blamed China for the lack of progress on the common framework. The common framework, for those of you not familiar, is the evolution of the G20's DSSI, that's the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, which only about between 5 and $10 billion uh, has been deferred in, you know, since this whole pandemic began. So again, when I said it's a colossal failure, that is really example number one right there. So they have the common framework, and the common framework is supposed to bring together private creditors, bilateral creditors, multilateral creditors, and then rather than working across the board as the DSSI did, many different countries with the same standards, the idea was the G20 would work with individual countries. So far, only three African countries have signed up. There is not an enormous amount of enthusiasm. But the key issue right now that the U.S. is specifically alluding to, and then the IMF more opaquely is alluding to by saying they need to speed it up, is the question about the Chinese. And what's at question here is the Chinese are struggling on how to participate in the common framework and then categorize their commercial loans and their concessional loans. So the China Development Bank is issuing a lot of loans at commercial rates. The China Exim Bank is doing a lot at concessional rates. That's a very broad generalization. There's a lot of variety in that in those two categories. But getting those two 
kind of categorized out and they're negotiating internally in Beijing is apparently what is slowing down the process, at least according to the U.S. government. Again, I have no way to know if this is true or not. But what we do know is there's been very little progress on the common framework. It does not look like private creditors are that excited about it. And that's where we are today. So, Cobus, we'll find out next week what actually happened. But I don't think there's a lot of reason for optimism that we're going to have any big breakthroughs at the G20 on debt relief. No, because I think you know one one of one of the key tensions within the G20 is the is the the issue between the kind of you know the the power differentials between the 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 particular governments in question um, and the 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 private sector in those countries you know um, and just because the governments say jump that's not necessarily how the private sector behaves um, and as you as we pointed we carried in in the newsletter today um, in our, our number of the day like the the amount of 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 private sector debt that's been that's been deferred um, is I think. 0.2 percent that's right you know so so all of that eurobond debt and so on that that is that is kind of making people in zambia for example very worried you know the g20 is not doing anything about that you know um that's not even that's not even on no. the table actually for discussion but if it was um, just a priority for yeah. them but they're just not taking this seriously that's just what it feels like to an observer on the outside. So, okay, let's leave the conversation there. We covered a lot of ground. We'll be back next week with some guests, and hopefully the power will be back on in South Africa again. Kobus, I know you've been struggling struggling with this quite a bit lately yourselves. It really must be just so frustrating really... that you just never know when the load shedding is coming and going and and it's just it's so frustrating. I mean, we need to we need to do another full podcast episode about ESCOM because there's an, there's all kinds of interesting kind of Chinese connections to it. Um, and the but you know ESCOM is going to COP26 actually to try and look for thirty billion dollars in in loans in concessional loans to essentially kind of reconfigure South Africa's grid. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. But like they'll be facing I think some tough questions because they're already so like I think 26 billion dollars in the hole already um, you know and a lot of that is is actually is Chinese debt um, you know so so yeah it's it's not <laughs> South Africans are, are kind of like building like like they're slapping solar panels on every single thing that can like that moves or they're starting to now you know kind of but but the problem is that they, you know those are still a lot more expensive than they should be um, and uh, you know so yeah it's 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 tough it's a very very frustrating it's interesting to see the the kind of spike in negativity that you know that that happens on south african twitter the moment any kind of power issues come come into discussion you know like everybody hates escom like like it's it's it may, it may be the, the 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 least popular kind of entity in the entire country and i mean this is a this is a country who like has has a lot of kind of like bile to spare you know kind of but they, they particularly focus on escom they really hate their guts well, let's hope that it gets a little bit better. They may not get $30 billion. That's a That seems like a long shot. But if they get even a little bit to help relieve the suffering that you guys are going through. But we, again, we'll have some folks on the show again next week. Uh, we do enjoy these little chats that Kobus and I have to recap some of the top stories of the week. We hope you also find it enjoyable. If you like what we're doing, you can support us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash China Africa Project. We have some great offers, some great content, weekly digest, special podcasts, Zoom briefing 
things. And then, of course, you can subscribe to the China Africa Project website at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. You'll get access to thousands of articles. Plus, you'll also get our daily email newsletter. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, for Cobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Project.com.